Thank you everyone for joining me. It's Parshat B'Shalach and welcome to Parshas B'Shalach, Parsha Shir. Uh, we're going to uh, share some very, very interesting um, ideas from the Nesivas Sholem. But before we do, I'd like to thank our sponsor today. Uh, the Parsha Shir is sponsored by Aaron and Lillian Fuchs and their son Jason Fuchs in memory of Aaron's sister and of course Jason's aunt, Shandel Gutman. Shendel Gittel Baschaim Shol Aleha Sholem, whose yard site was on the 11th of Shvat. And Hashemah should have an Aliyah, we should be Zoycher to see Tchias Hamesim. We're going to look today at a, a wonderful piece in the Nasivas Sholem. But before I begin the actual words of the Nasivas Sholem, I'd like to pose a question to you. And it's it, the premise of the question. The foundation of the question is something that uh, you should be familiar with if you've heard or watched my shiurim in the past, and that is that we are hamstrung, we are disadvantaged in our um, looking at each story, each anecdote, each vignette, each episode in the Torah, um, and there many aspects of the Torah, not just the narrative portions of the Torah, by virtue of the fact that we already know the outcome. You know, if you would read a book and know who the uh, culprit was when you began reading the book, it doesn't make the book so interesting. But even if the book is well written, it somehow removes the tension and it removes some aspect of the surprise, the interest that you may have in the plot as it unfolds. You may enjoy it for literary reasons, but you're not going to enjoy it because of the plot twists and turns because you already know the outcome of the story. To some extent, much of what we know about the Torah is coloured by our uh, prior information, the knowledge that we have about how the story turns out. And today I want to look at a particular aspect of this. Uh, and although the Nesivas Sholem himself doesn't ask this particular question, it's the question he's really addressing. And it's a question that many of the commentaries address, none of them necessarily by specifying the question, but because of the way they explain this particular episode, it is clear that this is a question that bothered them or that uh, they feel needs to be addressed. So let me share with you the background to the story of the Exodus, because this week we have the final piece of the puzzle, and that is with the splitting of the Red Sea. They come to the shores of the Yamsuf, the sea splits for them, they get to the other side, they sing Oz Yashem Moshe, and now it's onwards and upwards to Mount Sinai. But I, I want to go back, if I can, together with you, to the beginning of the story. We know that Yaakov Avinu, this already occurred at the end of Sefer Bereshis, that Yaakov Avinu, together with his children, 70 in all, including Yosef, came to Egypt at some point at the origins, at the dawn of Jewish history. That was a fulfillment of the prophecy of the Brisbane Absarim, the uh, covenant that God made with Abraham, with Abraham Avinu, that the nation that was going to be formed out of his descendants would initially go through a period of slavery or a period of servitude, let's call it that, in a country that doesn't belong to them. They would have to go through this purgatory, as it were, in order to emerge as a nation. So everybody knew what was going on. 
So they come down to Egypt and slowly but surely um, all the good feelings towards their family that had resulted or that um, was, uh, a, was based on the fact that Yosef, who was the viceroy of Egypt, had saved the country, it slowly dissipated, disintegrated, was forgotten. And suddenly the Jewish people were considered outsiders, they were persecuted and worse. And soon they were the subjects of genocide, the male babies were being killed in the River Nile, etc. And they were enslaved and it was extremely difficult. So that's the beginning of the story. I don't want to go through the whole Seder night tonight, I just want to paint the background. Moshe Rabbeinu enters the scene, he is summoned by God, he is chosen by God to lead the Jewish nation, not yet formed, out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. And he comes from Midian, where he had been in hiding because uh, he was escaping a certain death sentence after having killed an Egyptian. In any event, he returns and it doesn't go quite as smoothly as he imagined. And to a certain degree, and we've spoken about this before as well, the Jewish people now uh, are only um, sort of side actors in this story. The story becomes about Moshe Rabbeinu and Paroi, and Pharaoh refuses to let the Jewish nation out of Egypt in order to serve their God. And the battle goes on between the two of them, and plague after plague um, afflicts Egypt until finally there is the plague of the death of every firstborn son in the home of every Egyptian, as a result of which Pare rushes in the middle of the night, he rushes to find Moshe Rabbeinu and he says to him, Moshe, the game is up, you won, your nation can leave, off you go. That's the end of Parshas Boi. So the first three Parshios of Shemois, and if you're going to uh, be uh, completely precise, it begins at the end of Sefer Bereshis, are the story of, of the Jewish nation, not yet formed, going through this period of servitude in Egypt and eventually emerging uh, in Yitzias Mitzrayim, this incredible moment, as a result of which uh, they emerged. Uh, it's, it's compared in the sources uh, to a kind of uh, second creation, a second Maase Bereshis, there was a Mas Eberatius when the physical universe was created, and then there was a kind of Mas Eberatius, it's a parallel to spiritual Mas Eberatius, when the Jewish nation was formed out of this uh, group of people that were serving as slaves in the land of Egypt. You would think that the story is now over, and if it wouldn't be for the fact that year after year we go through it, not once but twice, every single year, and if you live in Chutzla Aretz you go through it three times, because we have two nights of Seder, we describe the story in some detail and we go through it and one of the aspects of the story that we mentioned that we gloss over in fact is the story of what happened after Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So in and of itself Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is a cause for great celebration. They go from there victorious, triumphant you would imagine, to the land of Israel and uh, indeed as Parah had pointed out to Moshe Rabbeinu, game over, you won, the prophecy came true, you emerged out of servitude, you are now your own people, and God's prophecy was correct. But that's not what happened. In fact, what actually happened was they went through a period of incredible crisis, not months later, but a few days later. It's about a week later, and they are now on the shores of the Yamsuf, of the Red Sea. 
and they've got no way of crossing. They don't have a fleet of ships to get them across the Yamsuf. And directly behind them is the might of the ancient Egyptian army. It's the most powerful military force on planet Earth in those days, without any question. All the latest technology in military hardware was at their fingertips and they were bearing down on the Jewish nation who are shivering in their shoes, expecting to be annihilated. They're caught between, as we say in English, a rock and a hard place, but not quite. They're caught between the Egyptian army, certain death, and the Red Sea, drowning, certain death. That is the situation. My question, and the question which we have never really considered properly is, why? Why wasn't Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim enough? They've already come out of Egypt. The exodus has already happened. Why do they need to go through a second exodus, as it were? Why is it that the Jewish nation couldn't emerge complete and whole out of Mitzrayim and go to Harsinai, even if it's going to take them 49 days until they receive the Torah at Harsinai, without having to go through the incredible crisis that they experienced on the shores of the Red Sea. That's the question. Now, you've never really thought about it before because you think that part and parcel, um, uh, the part and parcel of everything that goes on uh, on the shores of the Red Sea, part and parcel, it's part and parcel of Yetzirah Mitzrayim itself. That is what you probably think. That's what's in your mind because that's what you've been trained to think because you've heard this story so many times before. You know that Yetzirah Mitzrayim includes escaping from Egypt or getting out of Egypt on the first night of Pesach. And it also includes, a few days later, getting through the Red Sea, which uh, splits. That's really the story. There's this incredible miracle. It's probably the most dramatic miracle that ever occurred in the history of mankind. A sea split so that a nation could get through it. And the moment they were through it, the Egyptian army, which was chasing behind them, and we don't know exactly how dramatic it was and how many hundreds of yards they were behind them, but they drowned because the sea came crashing down on them and the entire army was annihilated. That's the story. But why did it need to happen? Why wasn't it enough for the Jews to get out of Egypt and for the Egyptians to live their lives out the way they lived it and the Jews for, for, to receive the Torah and go to Eretz Yisrael and everyone should live happily ever after? That's the question I want you to consider and reflect on as I go through this Nesivas Sholem, which is so important and so wonderful. It's actually one of the most important Nesivas Sholems about the entire Yetzirah Mitzrayim episode. And if you remember it and recall it, I would suggest that you talk about this on Seder night. It's something that you should discuss because it contains such a crucial element of what Yetzirah Mitzrayim is actually about. It contains something which is so central to what it means to be a Jew. And of course, Pesach is the Jewish nation forming moment of our history. And in order to understand who we are as Jews, it is essential. It is crucial that we remember this particular Nesivus Sholem or the point that he raises in it. So what happened was the Jewish nation comes crying Whoever they were, it could have been the elders, it could have been the leaders, it could have been just 
individuals who happen to be around Moshe Rabbeinu at the time, they come to the shores of the Red Sea. In the distance, they're looking through their binoculars or however it is they can see what's going on behind them. They can see the might of the, of the Egyptian army bearing down on them. They came to uh, Moshe Rabbeinu and they began crying to him as, as well they might. We are facing certain death. Why did you take us out of Egypt? What do we go through all this for? just to be killed on the shores of the Red Sea or in the Red Sea. We could have stayed there. Yes, it was a pretty miserable existence, but it's better to be alive and miserable than happy and dead. So that's what happened. Now, he went to Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, they went to Moshe Rabbeinu and he went to God and he began crying to God and saying, you know, what do you want me to do? And he's davening to Hashem. And Hashem says as follows, Why are you crying to me? Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Bnei Yisrael and they should go, they should travel. He says they should go into the Red Sea. Now, of course, it's quite a, a, a stunning instruction because the Red Sea is water. And I'm sure that uh, even if people like to go to bathe in the first few feet of water that's just beyond the shoreline, they don't imagine that an entire nation can walk through a sea. So when they are instructed to walk through the Red Sea, that's obviously going to be quite an instruction. It's a stunning piece of information. You should go to certain death. But that's what Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu. The first thing he says is, why are they crying out to me? Which seems a bit of an odd question. And the second thing he says is, they should just walk into the sea and, and we'll take it from there. Says the Nesivas Shalom. Hamafarshim hikshul al-omrei matitzak elai. The Mepharshim are all puzzled by the fact that God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, why are you crying out to me? Or why are they are crying out to me? Why is anyone crying out? Why is anybody davening to me? What exactly is a Jew, a person of faith, meant to do when he's in a bind, a, a spot of bother, trouble, that they found themselves in that time? I mean, what exactly are you expecting them to do? Of course, they are going to... Uh, they're going to daven to Hashem. Just as the Jews who were on the sea, any Jew who is in a difficult situation, he's a believing Jew, he believes in Hashem, he believes that Hashem wants to help him, of course he's going to daven. That's uh, expected. So why would God have asked Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, uh, why would he say to them, why would he say to Moshe Rabbeinu, why are they crying out to me? What should a Jew do if he's not going to cry out? to God. And um, he quotes a posuk, a posuk we're all f- familiar with, Min ka, noni We know that God says, um, David HaMelech says, Min from the deepest depths of, of difficulty, as it were, I cry out to Hashem and He answers me. So we know that this is a concept that we're familiar with in religious faith, that when you are in a spot of bother, when you're going through incredible difficulties, when you're in a challenging moment in your life, you're going to daven to Hashem in Ameitza, Karasika Anani Bamerchavka. And then God is going to answer you. In which case, why would God have said to Moshe Rabbeinu, why are they crying out to me? And there's another question, a fundamental question uh, that, that adds further fuel to this fire. What is it? In Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the exodus of Egypt, in this entire miracle 
miraculous situation of the Jews escaping from Egyptian servitude. How did it all begin? Do you remember how it all began? I'll tell you how it began. We say it, say the night. Why did it begin? Because they cried out to Hashem and then Hashem heard their cries and he came and he assisted them. He helped them. He saved them. He brought them out of Egypt. Why did it happen? They cried out. What does it mean they cried out? They davened. So why was it different then to now? Why exactly is now no good when they're crying out to him? But then it was good enough for him to go to Moshe Rabbeinu and appoint Moshe Rabbeinu to be their leader to take them out of Egypt. Why now is he seemingly oblivious to their cries and telling them, I don't understand why you're crying out. Whereas earlier on, he was very moved by their cries. God in fact, save the Jewish nation only because they cried out to him. So he quotes the Urachaim. The Urachaim comes uh, with an answer, which is fascinating. It's based on a Chazal. We know that there's two middos of Hashem Yisbarach, two very important attributes that we're familiar with. We're, we're most familiar with them. Um, through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There's something called Midas Hadin, the attribute of justice. What is justice? Justice is, a, is very cold, it's very dry. It is, this is right and that's wrong. There's no flexibility in justice. Either you deserve to be exonerated or you are guilty. It's as simple as that. There's nothing else to discuss. That's something called Din. That's Midas Hadin. And Midas Hadin in this situation came to Hashem as it, I, I don't know how best to describe it, but the Midas Hadin that Hashem has acted as a, a devastating prosecution of the Jews. Uh, if, you want to, if you want to understand the situation, Midas Hadin says to Hashem, says the Orachim, Halalu, Halalu, What exactly is the difference between the Jewish nation and the Egyptian nation? Nothing. They are both, um, both nations can be considered heretics. They are both oivde avoidazara. We know that the Jewish people, even though they retained some fondness or connection with God, ultimately they had become just like the Egyptians in almost every way. So on a scale, and we've discussed this before, of 1 through 50, they were already at 49. So they're more or less the same as the Egyptians. And in fact, we know had they made it to number 50, they would have forfeited their right to redemption. So therefore, Midas Hadin says to Hashem, what exactly is the difference between these two people? Let them go at each other. And let's see who wins. Either Egypt will win or the Jewish people will win. But why should you interfere? Halalu v'halalu, oivdei avoider zora. There's no difference between these two groups of people. They're zora. So why are you interfering? Why are you getting involved? That's what Midas Hadin said to Hashem. Now, there's another Midah. The attribute that we can refer to as Rachamim. Mercy. What is mercy? So sometimes justice is very harsh. I told you it's cold, it's dry. It's either right or it's wrong. But then there's something called rachamim. That adds gray area. That adds flexibility. Mercy allows you to be merciful. Even if somebody is guilty, there may be some mitigating circumstance that can allow us to say, you know what, even though you're guilty, we're going to give you another chance. 
So usually, and we hope for it, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Rachmim comes along to, to Hashem when Din has um, gone through all the reasons why somebody should be convicted. Rachmim comes along and says, you know what, Hashem, it's true that through Midas Hadin, there's no room for flexibility, but let's employ Midas Rachamim. Let's give some mercy in this situation, and then there's a bit of room for flexibility. It's not quite as bad. Let's see if we can give them another chance. Now, Midas Rachamim, in this situation, says that Rachaim came along and tried to offer mitigating reasons as to why Hashem should favor the Jews rather than the Egyptians who were intent on killing them. That's the situation as described by the Orachaim. But, but it wasn't successful. Rachmim was not able to present a convincing case for Rachamim, and therefore Din was going to prevail. What happened? And that's what it means in this posuk when God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Why are you crying out to me? Why are they davening to me? What difference does it make? He says, it could be that I want to make a miracle for them, but the truth is they're not worthy of that miracle. So you're going to ask, why did he redeem them from Egypt. Oh, that had nothing to do with them. That had to do with Avraham Avinu. He made a promise to Avraham. He made a promise to Yitzchak. He made a promise to Yaakov that the Jews would emerge out of Egypt. Okay, deal done, game over. Now Hashem's no longer involved. We know that Hashem doesn't interfere in the affairs of humankind. He made a specific promise to Avraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov that he would in that scenario of the Jews being slaves in Egypt. But that didn't continue to the shores of the Red Sea. Now that you are redeemed, now that I have fulfilled the prophecy, now that I have discharged my duty, God says, all bets are off. You're no different than the Egyptians. You're on your own. That's what God was telling the Jewish people. And that's what he says to Moshe Rabbeinu. What is the point of them davening to me? There's no point because they don't have any zchusim by which... I can uh, intervene miraculously to save them from the might of the Egyptian army. Just because they are davening, that is not going to be sufficient for Midas Hadin to be overruled. And therefore Midas Hadin is going to be probably successful in this situation and the Jewish people will be annihilated. Strictly speaking, Midas Hadin was going to win the day. Incredible, isn't it, this Nesiva Shalom? You never thought of it this way before. It's absolutely remarkable. Va'amar Elov, but that wasn't the end of the Posuk. The Posuk begins by Hashem Moshe, Matitzak Eli could have stopped there. He doesn't say that. He says, Dabrel He says, But I do have a solution for them. It's got nothing to do with me, by the way, God says. This is not a solution that I can activate. There is a solution, but they have to activate it. They have to trigger it. How does the light turn on in a room? Oh, it's another light bulb joke. How does the light turn on in the room? You have to push the switch. Now, you can look at the light, and you can daven to the light, and you can daven to Hashem for the light to go on, but the light's not going to go on unless you flick the switch that is going to turn the light on. You have to push that button. God was telling Moshe Rabbeinu, there is a button. If you want to activate a nace, there is a button. And that button is Vayisu. 
This is what he says to Moshe Rabbeinu. What does that mean? Pirush. This is the only solution. This is the only advice that I can give that is going to provide a solution for the Israelites, for the Jewish nation. They need to strengthen themselves. They need to complete with complete conviction, have faith in Hashem. With all their hearts. And they have to go into the sea before it splits. Not as it is already split, wait for it to split like a nace, like one of those miracles in Egypt. No, no, Th- those miracles are over. Now, if you want a miracle to happen, to, and it's not even good enough to cry out to me, that's just davening. That's on a level, but that's not enough. You need to demonstrate, you need to show with action that you have complete faith in me, in Hashem. That's what Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu. How do you do that? Walk into a sea where you're facing certain death. That is what you have to do. Walk into the sea before it splits. On the basis of the fact that I can perform miracles. By the way, that doesn't mean he will perform the miracle. But on the basis of the fact that I can perform a miracle to save them, that is the betochen that they need to have in order for me to activate the nace. Simply davening to me is not sufficient. And by, and by doing that, they unlocked this incredible nace, this, the greatest nace of all of history, and that is the splitting of the Red Sea. That is the opening theme of this Nesivus Sholem that, uh, that I'm sharing with you today. In and of itself, it's already fantastic. And already we can see the Nesivus Sholem is shaping up to explain to us a, fundal, a fundamental aspect of Jewish faith, which is actions speak louder than words. It's not enough to say, I believe. You have to do I believe. It's not enough simply to say Hashem will help me. Hashem will help you if you help yourself. As I used to say to people over the years, the Lord helpeth those who helpeth themselves. We need to help ourselves and then we can rely on God's miraculous uh, involvement, his intervention to make sure that our acts, which are puny and uh, insignificant by comparison can turn into something much more meaningful because of his assistance. And he says something unbelievable. He says, let me explain to you what this is all about. There's a posuk, it's posuk gimel in Eicha, sosam sefilosi, Hashem shut out my prayer. He completely barred my prayer from any entry. There is this concept that a prayer is somehow not sufficient in particular situations. What does that mean? What does it mean? When you see a situation of sosam tfilosi, then the tefillah stays where it is. It is not able to penetrate the most elevated levels of heaven. God can hear them, as it, of course, God can hear everything, but it's not able to achieve its objective. It can't get to where it needs to go in order to achieve its objective. Um, and But there is a koyach, there is a power that we have that nothing can stop. There's no sasam 
for this particular situation, there is no way that it can be prevented from reaching its destination. What is that? It's got nothing to do with prayer. Prayer is, in some senses, transactional. I need something, I pray, I get it. It's like putting, you know, you take your debit card, you put it in the Casper mat into the bank machine, and you type in your number, and the cash comes out. Okay, I mean, that makes sense. It's transactional. I have money in the bank. I put the card in, I type in the number, I know the PIN number, and I get the money out. But there's sometimes that you put the card in, and you don't get any money out. Why? Because there's no money in your bank account. So it doesn't matter how many times you put the bank card in, it's not going to work. It's not going to be able to achieve what you want it to achieve. So you're wasting your time. But there is a card that you can put in. It's not called a debit card. It's nothing to do with what you have in your bank account. It's called a credit card. What's a credit card? A credit card is that the bank gives you credit, trusts that you're going to pay it back. Why? Because it knows that you believe in the system and the system believes in you. You're part of that system that enables you to achieve that objective. You put the card in, you've got a certain amount of credit, even though you may not have the money, you may not have it for some time, but you can get the money out of the cash machine. That is bitochen. You want to know what the credit card is? Do you know what gives you limitless credit, unlimited credit? You can put the card in and get cash out. It's called bitochen. It's an incredible power. That's what the Siddhas Shalom is telling us. A debit card, you run out of cash. Sorry, you don't have the zechuyos which enables you to be saved. I need you to do something. I need you to change from a debit card to a credit card. What's in the credit card? In the credit card is bitochen. Bitochen gives you unlimited funds. You put the card in. And the money will come out. Obviously, I'm just using that as an example. It's just an analogy. Bitochen is so much more than a silly plastic card. And what we get from Hashem in return for Bitochen is so much more than anything I could describe that comes out of a cash machine. Bitochen. Bitochen is powerful. When a Jewish person believes in the mercy that can emerge out of heaven. Despite for the, despite the terrible consequences that can result because of the challenging situation that you face, God can have mercy on you. Like a father has mercy on his son. That is the power of Bitochen. And this the koach of faith, is something that can stand you in good stead in any type of situation. It says in the Medrash, it's incredible Medrash on Tehillim. It says in the Posuk, my God, this is what David Amelech says. I believe in you. Don't abandon me. Don't leave me. Be, don't, don't leave me behind. But the first thing it says, botachti. I believe in you. That's the most important thing. I believe in you. By the way, believing in Hashem is not only in situations when you need Hashem. 
And it's not just in situations where you don't get what you want from Hashem. Believing in Hashem is in any situation. I asked Hashem for something, I didn't get it, I believe in Hashem. I asked for something in a, from Hashem and I, did, and I got it, I believe in Hashem. I'm in a happy, I have everything I need, I believe in Hashem. I don't have anything that I need, I believe in Hashem. Thank you Hashem. Hashem, you've given me everything. I have faith in you, I have faith that you know what's best for me. Yes, sometimes I think that I would like to have this. It would help me in my relationship with you because it will give me the power to devote more of my time and more of my energy to my faith relationship. But ultimately, b'cha botachti. Eloikai, b'cha botachti. I believe in you. And then, alevoisha, please don't abandon me. That's what the Possek says. Maseh. So the Medrash comes up with a moshal, uses this um, little allegory to demonstrate what the posuk means. A fellow comes to a city, it's the city of the king, it's the capital city, and he can't get in, and he uh, is, I guess, resting is like a homeless guy outside the walls of the city. And the king's guards find him lying down outside the walls of the city. And they want to hit him. They see him as, as somebody who's undesirable. And they want to hit him. They want to uh, um, cause him harm. Don't hit me. What do you think you're doing? How can you hit me? I belong to the household of the king. I work for the king. I'm an intimate friend of the king. So you know what? They took him inside and they sat him in a room somewhere and they waited until the morning. And they bring this fellow, this guy who was sleeping outside the walls of the city, they bring him into the throne room, into his majesty's presence. Is it true that you know me? Love. No, I don't know you. I've never met you before. <laughs> it's a bit surprising. He told the soldiers the night before so that they shouldn't hit him. He said, I know the king. He's my best friend. And now the king asks him, do you know me? He says, no, I don't know you. In which case, says the king, how did you claim to be an intimate member of my household? What is it that you were saying? He says, you know what? I'm not an intimate member of your household. That's true. But I believed in your generosity, your kindness and your good spiritedness. That if I say I belong to the household of the king, that you will have mercy on me. In other words, the power of the kindness of Hashem is that if you say you belong to his household, you've got bitochen in him, you have a relationship with him, he'll have mercy on you, even if you've never known him before. You're not an intimate friend of Hashem, but you say you belong to his household, you have bitochen in him, then that bitochen works. So the king said to the guards, who still were very angry with this man, and now even more so, leave him alone, leave him. Absolutely, he believes in me, he believes in my kindness, he believes in my generosity, and therefore you shouldn't hit him. 
כך אומר דוד אלוקי בכל בוטחתי על אבוישו. That's what David HaMelech means. David HaMelech is saying, I believe in you, therefore you're never going to abandon me. It's not possible for you to abandon somebody who believes in you. It's not possible for somebody to have bitochoin and then Hashem doesn't want to have anything to do with them. It doesn't work. That equation doesn't make any sense. That's what David HaMelech is saying. And similarly we find with Esther, Even though the Shechina removed itself from her, she increased her level of Bitochen in Hashem. You know, you'd think that somebody who's in a dire situation, that somehow they would say, well, obviously God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. There is no God, and they won't believe in Hashem anymore. But Esther, as bad as it got, her belief in Hashem, her faith in God, increased even more. She said, it doesn't matter, I've cried out to Hashem, it makes no difference to me. It doesn't answer me, it makes no difference to me. I'm still calling out to Hashem. And this is exactly what it meant when God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, Why are you crying out to me? Even though we know that the entire exodus, the redemption from Egypt, from the slavery, from the servitude, was only as a result of them davening to Hashem, even so, and you could say that even in that situation, both the sides there were idol worshippers. The Jews were not better in Egypt than they were when they got out. They were exactly the same. Why were they let out? Because God had made a commitment to Avram Avinu that they were going to be redeemed. And that's why they got out. After they've been through the slavery and servitude, they will emerge with great wealth and riches. That was a promise and that covenant had to be kept. But the incredible revelation at the Yamsuf, that's a totally different situation. There, as I said earlier, all bets are off. That situation, it's not enough that he made the promise to Avram Avinu. That promise had been kept over and done. The deal had been done. It had, you know, and that was over. It had been completed. Now you're on your own. Now it's Mikach Yisrael. So he says, the Titzak only works if you're crying out to me on the basis of a promise I made to Avram Avinu. But here no promise was made. Now you're on your own, guys. Matitzak Eli. It's time for you to take matters into your own hands. Do something on your own initiative. Make sure that you are the person who achieves the objective that you need to achieve. It's time for them to emerge from the Avodah Zorah that they had been immersed in in Egypt and to declare their faith in Hashem, not just declare it, but act out on it. They needed to act on it and they needed to become people of faith, not because they expressed faith, but because they acted in faith. They have to march into the sea. We believe in Hashem. We believe He can save us. That doesn't mean that we're relying on the nace, but they rely on the fact that God can do a miracle. And that in and of itself would be sufficient to unleash the power 
of the mightiest miracle ever to occur. So, so now we have this second stage of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Stage one, part A, before the intermission, that was Avram Avinu. That's Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov. That's Brisbane Absorim. That's got nothing to do with Yozechusim, Yozechuyos. Nothing. Now it's Yozechuyos. That's part two. That's after the intermission. This is your moment. This is the moment that you need to take into your own hands and do something to make sure it happens. That is the moment of Kriyas Yamsuf. And we know that the Torah doesn't just say things superfluously. We know that the Torah is telling us and teaching us something which is profound in its importance. Do you know what the Torah is telling us? It's not enough to believe because my father believed, my grandfather believed. It's not enough to say I'm a Jew because my father was a Jew, my grandfather was a Jew. It's not enough to say the reason I go to shul is because my father went to shul, my grandfather went to shul, I keep Pesach because my father kept Pesach, my grandfather kept Pesach, etc, etc, etc. That is not enough. Do you know why you do these things? Do you know why you are a Jew? Because you are a Jew. You are a person of faith. It's not enough, by the way, you could have been born into any nation or into any country and it makes no difference. You may not have been born a Jew. Who says you would have been born a Jew? And for many people who abandon their Judaism, that is the excuse they make. We didn't choose to be Jewish. And therefore, why should we continue in the way of our father and our grandfather? The power of, the, of Kriyas Yamsuf is to teach us it's not good enough to have had Avraham and Yitzhak and Yaakov who were the advance party as persons of faith. That's great grounding. That's a great narrative. It's a foundational narrative for the Jewish people. But you have to be your own foundational narrative. You have to be a person of faith. You have to be ready to be Nachshon ben Aminodov and jump into the Red Sea. It's not enough for you to cry out to God and say, save me. Why? Why should I save you? What have you done to prove that you have faith in Hashem? What are you bringing to the table? Now, there's nothing I, I can bring anything to the table, God could say. But what are you bringing to the table? There's only one thing I want from you. Bitochein. There's only one thing I need from you. Bitochein. Faith. I need that relationship with you. And by the way, it's not just superficial faith. You say, oh, I believe in Hashem. You know, I've met uh, Jews before who say, I believe in God, I just don't have time for all the other stuff. What do you mean? What is believing in God if it has no practical application? Judaism is all about practical application of faith. By the way, you have people at the other end of the spectrum as well. People who, who do all the acts, but they don't have faith. They do everything. They keep all the mitzvahs. They daven. I heard this story once about the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov came into a shul. He said, it's a, a fantastic shul. It's full of tfilois. So they said to him, what do you mean? He says, you know what? All the people who daven here, they don't have any bitochen. They don't have any true faith in Hashem. So do you know where the tfilois are? They stay right here in the shul. They don't go to Shemaim. Do you want to daven in a shul which is full of tfilois? Or do you want all those tfilois to go boldly where they need to go? 
I want to daven in a shul which is empty of tefillahs because every tefillah goes straight to its destination. Says Hashem to Moshe Rabbeinu, Matitzak Eli. How is it that you expect that if the Jewish nation davens to me that somehow that is going to be sufficient to achieve the objective that you want it to achieve? No, it's not enough. That cannot be it. There has to be there has to be a situation where they actually march into the Red Sea and are willing to make sacrifices for their faith because they have faith. The faith has to be matched by action and all actions have to be matched with faith. So we'll leave it here. There's much more to this Nasiva's Shalom, but I think that you'll agree that we now understand exactly why Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim have to, had to be split into two. The first part was just like when we are born Jewish and when we have a bris milah, our parents give us a bris milah and pay, perhaps they'll put us into Jewish schools. They'll give us all the grounding and there we are. We've been trained to be a Jew. Like a dog can be trained to do what it has to do and like a dolphin can be trained in SeaWorld to do what it has to do. But that has nothing to do with what's going on in your neshama, in your heart. Do you have bitochen? If you train a dog or a dolphin or a monkey or a horse to do certain things, does that mean that they're feeling it in their heart? No, they're just following a pattern. It's not enough. The Jewish people who are let out of Egypt are a nation. They have all the ingredients to become the great Jewish nation, Am Yisrael, that could say Nasev Anishmat Har Sinai. But they would never have said it just by coming out of Egypt. Do you know why they said it? Because they were willing to march into the Red Sea. They were willing to have bitochen in Hashem. And by the way, that's why when they came out of the Yamsuf, they sang, Oz Yoshir Moshe of Yisrael Sashir Hazois, That is why they sang it then and not after Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Because at that stage, it wasn't their faith. How could they have said that if they were still Oiv De'avoyed Zorah? They hadn't emerged from their heresy. They hadn't emerged from their idolatrous practices yet. They were still Egyptian. It happened to be they were Egyptians of Jewish descent. Now they became Jews. Do you know why they became Jews? Dabar al-Bnei Yisrael, the Yisu. It's no longer that they were davening on the basis of being descended from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They were now Jews in their own right. They were Jews who could march into a sea and maybe even drown. But they had such bitochen that Hashem can do whatever He needs to do in order for them to be what they need to be. And it's only through this part two, this second stage of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, that it was possible for them to emerge out of the Tumor, the impurity, the spiritual impurity of Egypt, and go to Har Sinai and at the foot of Mount Sinai, when God offers them the Torah to say, Na'aseh v'nishma. We will do, we will do, we'll march into the Red Sea. And then Nishma will listen to what it's all about. Our bitochen enables us to observe the Torah, even if we don't have any further information. We'll leave it here. Thank you.